Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Romans chapters 1 through 6. This is the beginning of the epistles, which will take predominantly the rest of the New Testament till the book of Revelation. We're dealing with epistles either written by Paul or other church leaders, and then the New Testament will conclude with the book of Revelation, which was written and received by John, the revelator on the Isle of Patmos. Now, before we jump into the epistles and before we get into Romans, just I want to make a brief mention as to how they're put into the text. You see, in the first few centuries after Christ, there were many epistles circulating. There really wasn't a Bible per se that existed in one book. We don't even have codices or books put together for many, many years. And so in the fourth century, there were a group of bishops that were trying to decide okay, what are we going to make as canon? What are we going to make as the rule for what Christians should and should not subscribe to and believe and what should be used by the church? And so there was a festal letter that was circulated in the fourth century by Athanasius. And in this festal letter, Athanasius discussed deciding on when Easter should be celebrated. And in this letter, he lists 27 books that he would recommend as to be included in the canon of the New Testament. Now, it wasn't really decided then, but shortly thereafter, Jerome worked on the translation of the New Testament into Latin, what is called the Latin Vulgate. And in that translation that Jerome put together in Bethlehem and in and around Jerusalem, Right around 400 AD, that translation included the 27 books that Athanasius put in that festal letter. And so in the Bibles of the early, early church, right around the 5th century, the epistles were put in order based not on when they were written, but on length. So because these books were put in order based on length, Romans, having 16 chapters, is considered the longest of the epistles. Now, I think one of the exceptions is Hebrews, but if you kind of look at the epistles, they generally get smaller as we go down until we get to the, the smallest one of Paul's, which is Philemon. That one is just like one page. And so the epistles are put there that way, not based on chronology, but essentially that it's based on length. We will put in the show notes one scholar's approach to the chronology of the epistles, which one came first in the order and about about the time period that they were produced. I like this chart. I use it when I teach, but I don't necessarily hold to it as completely 100% accurate. When we get into some of these historical questions, we just need to swim in this water knowing that not everybody agrees and there's arguments on both sides. But I I generally like uh, the chart that we'll put in this week's Come Follow Me show notes regarding the order of the epistles. Which kind of brings up a fun way to read it. If you're interested, you could go through the book of Acts, and as Paul goes to Corinth, you read the letter to the Corinthians. And when Paul goes to Ephesus, you read the letter to the Ephesians. And so you can kind of put them in that order, that as they are mentioned in the book of Acts and the history, then you jump and read the letter. So that's kind of a fun way to read the New Testament. 
Now, before we get any further, let's just talk about the rest of the New Testament after the book of Acts. The book of Acts basically ends the historical period of the New Testament. So we have the Gospels, and then we have the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which some people call Luke Part 2. Like, this is the second part that Luke wrote. Luke wrote his Gospel, and then Acts kind of continues the historical narrative of what the Apostles do. And then after the book of Acts, we have a series of letters, and these letters or epistles are attributed to the Apostle Paul. There's 13 of them. And scholars debate how many of these were actually written by the apostle. Those debates continue. But essentially, the epistles were these letters that were sent out by Paul or his associates to the individual churches scattered throughout the empire. So, for example, Rome. Paul will spend some time in Rome. And so, the epistle to the Romans was probably written near the end of Paul's missionary journeys. As to the authorship of the epistle to the Romans, most New Testament scholars agree that this is written by Paul. It's generally agreed upon that they're his thoughts, his ideas, as he's inspired by the Spirit. And so the church in Rome is going to be a mixture of Jewish and Gentile converts. Paul is aware that there's different backgrounds between these two groups. So prior to church membership, the Gentiles weren't living the laws of Torah, but the Jews were. And so there's a little bit of tension going on there in the city of Rome. Okay, how much legalistic following of the law do I need to subscribe to? And so Paul's going to be addressing these concerns. It's also important to know that this book of Romans, or this letter to the Romans, doesn't cover everything in the gospel, and it certainly isn't meant for those that don't know the basic tenets of our faith, but it's actually written to those that believed in Jesus and that understood the gospel, and we kind of have to read it from that point of view. This is what Elder McConkie said. He said, the epistle to the Romans is a letter, not a treatise on gospel subjects. It is not written to the world, but to the saints, to people who already know and understand the doctrines of salvation. Paul's comments on gospel subjects presuppose an extensive prior knowledge on the part of the readers. He does not hear intend to expound doctrines as such. He simply comments about them, leaving unsaid the volumes of gospel understanding already possessed by the saints. Romans, then, is not a source of gospel knowledge for the spiritually untutored. It is not the initial place to turn to learn of Christ and his laws. That's from his Doctrine of the New Testament Commentary, Volume 2. And I really appreciate that. If we pick up the book of Romans, and this is our first introduction to Christianity, we're going to be a little bit confused. And so I think the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, might be a better place for somebody who's never heard of Jesus to start and maybe learn about Jesus. And the the book or the letter to the Romans would be something that they would probably want to read later. In today's vernacular, I would say, hey, let's start with the Book of Mormon. Let's teach the simple doctrines of Christ as contained in the Book of Mormon. Let the Spirit work on them and then get into some of the more weightier texts, or maybe some of the texts that have a little bit more complexity in them. And so that's another way to look at the book of Romans, as it were, a letter to a group of saints, many 
who already understand some of the tenets of the gospel. Now, that being said, Paul is going to address and refute some of the teachings of a group of people known as Judaizers. These are people that teach or believed that you have to follow the tenets of the law of Moses to follow Jesus. And so we're going to read some of that teaching by Paul correcting that stuff in the book of Romans. Romans is going to correct some of those ideas. The second thing we want to talk about is how to get more out of these epistles. Most people, I believe, have a love-hate relationship with the epistles of Paul. They love them or they hate them, depending on how much they get out of them. So let me give you two rules that have helped me get more out of the epistles. Rule number one came from Joseph Smith. The prophet one time said, I have a key by which I understand the scriptures. I inquire, what was the question that drew out the answer or caused Jesus to utter the parable? I think that's an enormous key. What was the question? What was the situation that led to this? See, Paul isn't declaring doctrine at a general conference of the church. Paul is writing a letter to a specific group of people who usually had specific concerns, questions, or needs. Usually, they had written to Paul a question. Now, if we had the letter they wrote to Paul, it would make a lot more sense what he wrote back to them, but we usually don't have the question. Sometimes Paul will mention it. Like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, as you asked to me about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Boom, there's the question. But quite often, the question is absent. So we have to ask and dig a little. Paul is being very specific. He's not declaring general doctrine. He's being specific to a question that was asked. So do your best to ask the question, what was the reason Paul was writing to this group of people? Now, the second key is keep it balanced. All truth has to be balanced. Elder Neil A. Maxwell called this orthodoxy of doctrine. He said the following, The gospel of Jesus Christ is a collection of principles woven together in the fabric of immutable law. This is the romance and the high adventure of orthodoxy. These principles bound together not only give us salvation, but they also give us balance, depth, and happiness in our lives. The doctrines of Jesus Christ are so powerful that any one of these doctrines, having been broken away from the rest, goes wild and mad. Any doctrine, unless it is woven into the fabric of orthodoxy, goes wild. The doctrines of the kingdom need each other, just as the people of the kingdom need each other. Now, I like that description because the way people often misuse the epistles is Paul is writing to a specific audience with a specific need, and he gives them a specific answer. And then people pull that away from the circumstance and try to make that a generic circumstance, and it goes wild. For example, when Paul is talking about grace, he's usually trying to rebalance a group of people that are out of balance, and so he talks about grace. But people then take his doctrine of grace and make it out of balance with everything else and make it wild. Or I would add, they don't know how it was understood in the Greek culture, and so it's been misused or misunderstood because hundreds of years have gone by. And now when we say grace or charis, it doesn't mean what it meant when Paul said it. So we have to go back to 
Well, how did they understand it in the first century? What was the context? What was the setting? How was it applied in this situation? Otherwise, it goes wild, as Neil A. Maxwell said. Let me give you an example of that. Our Heavenly Father is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time. But imagine someone who sees God out of balance towards the side of justice. They see God as being all justice and no mercy. And I know people like that. I know people that think, I'm never going to make it to heaven. I have to be perfect. God expects me to be perfect. If I'm not perfect, I'm not good enough. They see God as mostly justice and very demanding. And I, I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. They see God as mostly just. Now, what message does that group of people need to hear? What would be the balancing message? I would talk to that group about God's mercy. And by countering their feelings of God's justice with truth about God's mercy, I'm hoping to rebalance them and help them see that, yes, God is just, but God is merciful as well. Here's the problem, though. There are other people who are out of balance towards the side of mercy, and they see God as being overly merciful and not really imposing a lot of justice. These are the people Nephi described when he said, eat, drink, and be merry, nevertheless fear God. He will justify the committing of little sins. If, you know, go ahead and do what's wrong, because if we're wrong, God will slap us on the wrist and beat us with a few stripes, and then in the end, we'll be saved. Those are the people that are out of balance towards mercy. So what would my message of mercy to the saints that are out of balance on the side of justice do to someone who is out of balance on the side of mercy? If they heard my message to the first group, what would it do to the second group? It would push them further out of balance, and that doctrine has gone wild. What does that second group need to hear? They need to hear that God is just. They need to hear the message of justice. But again, what would that message do to group number one? Do you see the problem here? If we take it out of context, if we take it away from the group for whom it was intended, the doctrines become wild. So my encouragement to you is two things. Number one, what's the situation? What's the circumstance? What was the question that prompted the epistle? And number two, make sure you balance that doctrine with the interweaving of all of the Savior's doctrines so that we keep it balanced. That's good. As to the the city of Rome, there were about a million people in Rome and around Rome. Remember, this is the heart of the Roman Empire. According to one historian, Augustus could claim that he found a city that was made of brick, and he changed it to marble. He basically gave new life into the city of Rome. This city was the political and geographical center of the empire. And obviously, if you're Paul, you want to go to that city. You want to establish a Christian community in the heart of the empire. There was one Italian historian who lived during this time period, and he wrote that the rich were carried about in sedan chairs in Rome while the poor elbowed each other through cluttered streets. Rome is wicked but on the move with projects and ideas. It was an international city and a melting pot, 
all kinds of people. There were about, and it depends on who you read, but there were probably 20 to 50,000 Jews that lived in and around Rome during this time, and many of them were poor. There were many Jewish churches that existed across the Tiber. Many Jewish residents worked on the docks there, and Rome included a community of Jewish Roman citizens, mostly descended from Judeans that were enslaved by Pompeii and then freed by other Jews in Rome. That's kind of what Philo gives us. More than half of the Jewish residents of Rome had Latin names, but the primary language of the Jews at the time of Paul was probably Greek. You see, about two-thirds of the burial inscriptions during this time are in Greek, and so it's, it's assumed that most of the people in Rome during Paul's day are speaking and reading Greek, at least those that are literate, right? Obviously, not everyone's literate. Many Roman conversions to Judaism created resentment among other Romans. Some of the Romans would see their friends if they were converted to Judaism, and that would create tension between them for basically three obvious reasons. When people became Jews during this time, it involved circumcision, and that was something that caused social tension, as well as Sabbath rules and food customs. And so the Jews that lived in and around Rome, they would eat differently, and their table fellowship was different, and many of them didn't eat with Gentiles. And so that created a barrier between the Jews in Rome and those that were Uh, Gentiles in Rome. And this is one of the situations that Paul's finding himself struggling with. And so Paul has to try to teach them the best that he can that we don't have to follow all these food customs that we've been living in Judaism for all these years, that Christ has made us free, that we don't have to live the law of circumcision. And the 613 Torah laws that were so important in Paul's past life are less important now. But what do you do when you have a group of Jews, many of whom have now been converted to Christ? They believe that he's the Messiah, but they're still holding on to the old rules. And so Paul has to try to teach them the best that he can that all these rules of Torah do not necessarily have to be followed in order to follow Christ. And this created some tension in the early church even some of the tension within Judaism. You see, there were Jews who didn't believe in Jesus, and there were Jews that did. Remember, the early, early Christian church are Jews. These are Jews that are converted to Christ. And so Paul is coming there as an apostle to kind of sort this out. Another part of the background we need to realize, especially as we get into Romans chapter 1, is the way that the Romans lived is not the way that Christians need to live. The things going on in Rome, uh, just because everybody's doing it, didn't make it right. And so Paul's going to call out some of the behaviors of the Romans as reprobate. Uh, He's going to use phrases like adikia, which is unrighteousness, or ungodliness, esabia. He's going to say the things that the Romans are doing are unrighteous, and they are ungodly, and if you're going to be someone who follows Christ, you have to reject those things. And so big picture, the themes in Romans chapter 1, the beginning of this epistle, get into things like the righteousness of God, the problem of our human sinfulness, and our desperate need for salvation. And Paul's going to begin Romans 1 by talking about the universal human problem of sinfulness, emphasizing 
how Rome was just swimming in idolatry and, and immorality. And because of this, to follow Christ, we have to reject that. But yet, he's not telling them to leave Rome. They've got to be in Rome, but not be like the Romans. And I think that big picture is the beginning of this epistle. Now, do you see what Mike just did? He used his knowledge of a little bit of history, a little bit of culture to say, okay, what was the setting in which Paul is going to write? And it's wonderful if you have a historical background like Mike does, but even if you don't, don't be intimidated by these epistles. You can get a lot out of them. Think about what you know just from the New Testament. The Romans executed people by crucifixion because it was cruel and mean. And that's kind of a description of the empire. They would just crush you. The empire would come in and just walk all over you. So it was a very carnal, tough, justice, beat you up type of environment. And if you do dig into the history, you can imagine that they kind of have given in to the natural man. And what you're going to find in Rome are manifestations of that carnal, natural side of us. And boom, there's the setting. I'm going to expect Paul to talk about the wrestle inside me to control the natural man. And then he's going to say things like, well, are we better off controlling the natural man? Are people of faith better off? Because sometimes people that reject faith have a lot of money and their life seems to be going really well. And so how can we say that it's better to reject worldliness when some people are very worldly and seem very happy? Paul is going to address all of these issues, but knowing the background is going to help me unlock the secret of the epistle. So with that, let's jump into Romans chapter 1. And the question, what do you think the heart of the question is that he would talk about to those that lived in Rome. Let's talk about this struggle inside of us. Mosiah chapter 319, the natural man is an enemy to God. Second Nephi 2, for there must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. And then verse 16, Father Lehi says, the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore, man could not act for himself save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. The doctrine of Christ is that each one of us have enticements inside of us that are at opposition with each other. I am enticed by light and truth and goodness and spirit. And then I am enticed by carnality. I am enticed by the natural man and the things that become natural to the natural man. And there's the tension inside me. None of us were sent here to conquer Satan. That battle was won many years ago in a garden called Gethsemane. I have come not to battle Satan. I have come to battle me, to win the tension inside me, the war in my flesh, as Paul will call it. Now, whatever title you want to give it, we're going to kind of go with the common nomenclature that the enticement on one side is the natural man pulling me away from God. That's the animal that we had to lay on the altar in the Old Testament. If you do not control your natural man, your natural man will control you. That's the nature of our human experience. On the other side, we've got what we'll call the spirit. There is a spirit inside me who is enticed to goodness and light and truth. Now, which of those two enticements 
are you going to follow? Now, Paul is writing to a group of people who are surrounded by those who are being mostly enticed by the carnal inside them. Now, the first thing he's going to do, coming right out of the gate, he's just going to simply say, look, don't be ashamed of putting off the natural man. Don't feel like you have to follow the crowd. The most classic verse of Scripture in this week's Come Follow Me is probably Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. I am not ashamed. I'm not afraid to be different than the world. Now, Paul is going to draw some very powerful lines in the sand. And what he's trying to do here is let me show you the freeway that leads to carnality. In my vernacular, I know Paul's not going to say this, don't look for this in the text, but in my vernacular, Paul's going to say, let me show you how to become a son of perdition. Let me walk you down the road of perdition. The reason I say that, because the very last step is that you have become like Lucifer, your master. So allow me to make a list. You all know I love lists. I think Paul is saying, here is a list of how to become a son of perdition. I ask you to not be offended by the list and don't use the list as a tool of judgment to bang it over the heads of other people. Every one of us have to ask the question, am I making concessions to my natural man and giving it power in my life? That's the root of the question. But Paul is going to walk us down the road to being a son of perdition. Now, notice the road he doesn't talk about yet. He will someday, but not yet. Verse 17, right after I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. So that's a story Paul's going to tell another day. Let's go down the path of becoming like God. The righteousness of God is revealed in those who choose to follow his path. When I ascend into his presence and become like him, that's the righteousness of God being revealed. Now, he doesn't tell that story. Romans chapter 1 is the other story. So verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. God will give them up. Now, it takes a great deal for God to give up on someone. He just doesn't give up. But they have moved away so far that he cannot reach them anymore. The wrath of God is revealed to those who, remember, that's the setting, those who end up out of his kingdom. Now, we've talked about this in our Last Supper podcast where we talked about that the sons of perdition go to their own place. So God has removed them from his place. That's the wrath of God. You can't have one of his places. So God's wrath is revealed to those who walk down the path and refuse to have any part of God's kingdom. This is a harsh list, but it's very beneficial to say, how do you become a son of perdition? It's in the spirit. Those of you who love C.S. Lewis like I do, it's in the spirit of the screw tape letters. The screw tape letters are a series of letters from an apprentice devil to a master devil learning the trade. It's reverse psychology. It's letting us to see from the enemy's perspective so that my defenses are up and I'm prepared for them. That's the spirit of Romans 1. I like that. And so 
in verse 18 of Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And then you have that phrase in verse 21, that they had vain imaginations, their foolish heart was darkened, they became fools in verse 22. And then we read verse 24, God gave them up to uncleanliness or to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. That idea of God giving them up and the wrath of God, to me, comes down to my will. And this is just a verse not in Romans, but I, I appreciate it as commentary on this concept. It's Alma 29. In Alma 29, just to give you a little bit of context before we get into it, Alma desires that he were an angel, that he could cry repentance to everyone. But then after he says, I owe that I were an angel, he says in verse 3, I am a man and I do sin in my wish, for I ought to be content with the things which the Lord has allotted unto me. And then this is the point. He says, I ought not to harrow up in my desires the firm decree of a just God, for I know that he granteth unto men according to their desire, whether it be unto death or unto life. Yea, I know that he allotteth unto men, yea, decreeth unto them decrees which are unalterable according to their wills, whether it be unto salvation or unto destruction. To me, the way I read verse four is God will let us have what we want. And whether you call it wrath of God or him giving them up, either way, however you want to read it, I think it can be read lots of different ways. I think what Paul is saying is Rome's going to do what Rome's going to do. And if that's what you want, right. the Lord will allow you to go that direction. But here's where that's going to take you. Exactly. The Lord will allow you to go the direction you want. He's not giving up on you. He's just granting you the ability to go the direction, even if the direction you're going is away from him. That's how I read it. That's what I think Paul is trying to talk about here. So let's make the list. Ready? How do you become a son of perdition? Step number one is in that same verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all those that basically, now go to your footnote, you've got to read what Joseph Smith did when he changed verse 18. It starts when you love not the truth. That's step number one. The moment you don't care about truth, what is true? I am in a pursuit of truth. I care what is true. I want to know truth. Jesus prayed in that intercessory prayer, Father, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou sent. You have to know and love truth. And it is the switch point to those who end up in perdition. Now, what happens when you no longer love truth? Verse 23, you're going to have to wrestle with an ultimate source of truth. You have to change God to match your perceptions. So instead of changing you to match God, you change God to match you. So verse 23 well, 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools because why? They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men. If you fall out of love with truth, then you're going to have to change God to match what truth you do love. There's this powerful verse in the Psalms, chapter 50, 
verse 21. The rebuke is kind of this. These things hast thou done, and I kept silent. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. You turned God into man. Now, when you turn that step number two, you love not the truth and you change God into a corruptible God, a man-like God. And then number three, verse 24, wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. As soon as you turn God into man, you are worshiping the creature, not the creator. And the creature is your God. And the desires of the creature are now going to come out. The moment you worship creature, not creator, verse 26, you give in to all of the demands of the creature. You give yourself. God gave them up because they gave themselves over to the full demands of the creature. Now the creature is calling the shots. The natural man is calling the shots. And the natural man is going to punish and subdue that spirit and kill it if he can. And so in verse 26, Paul says, they give themselves over to vile affections. Now, Paul gives some specifics, but I don't think we should narrow it to any specific list. The idea here isn't what were they doing. The idea here is that the natural man was calling the shots. The natural man is in control. And you are giving in to the full demands of the natural man. Now, Paul gives a specific vile affection that was happening in that environment that he is going to point out is the fulfillment of this idea. But I don't think you and I need to narrow it to Paul's list. I think there are lots of forms of vile affection, but the gist of it is the natural man is calling the shots. I have surrendered my spirit to the natural man. That's what he's really rebuking here. You give in to the demands of the creature, and the creature is now calling the shots. Now, number five, verse 28, the more you give in to the creature, the more it is pushing down and trying to destroy the spirit. In the end of this battle, you cannot take the natural man into the celestial kingdom. Now, the more you give in to the natural man, Verse 28, you lose your ability to reason. You lose the light that allows you to see what you're doing. And so Paul calls that a reprobate mind. You are not capable of even seeing the problem with your behavior. You've lost the light to see where you're going and what you're doing. The more the natural man controls the spirit, the less the spirit is able to show you truth. And you have gained a reprobate mind. That's our world today. Like yeah. we've culturally, we've lost our minds yeah. 
it's so fascinating to me. Paul lays this list out here, and they've lost their minds in verse 28. And I just wonder sometimes, has Western culture completely lost its mind yeah. on, some, on some very fundamental issues? Let me add this. C.S. Lewis said this beautifully in Mere Christianity. He said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you're awake, not while you're sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. While you are making them, you cannot see them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you are sober, not when you are drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. And that's what Paul is trying to say is you've lost that reasoning ability to see that I am doing what's wrong. That leads us now to six. What's going to be the result of that? Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. Once you start controlling and pushing down the spirit, you know where that's going to go. You are filled with unrighteousness. And once you've gone all the way, the last one, the seventh, verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. You have become like your master who takes pleasure in our sins. He delights in our sins. And that's what you've become. Not only do you do sin, but you take pleasure in those who sin. And the transition is complete. Now, that's a harsh list, but I think Paul is waving his arms and asking, I think here's the take-home question for all of us. Have you made concessions to the natural man? Have you given in? And if you have, then change. The answer is back in that Mosiah chapter 3, verse 19 verse that is so important. Right after the angel says to King Benjamin, the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam. He then says he will be an enemy until when? Unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man. The antidote is to yield to the enticings of the Holy Ghost. Yield to the light. Seek the Spirit. I am convinced that the Spirit never dies. I love that during the apostasy, the root of truth never died. We would never have received a Bible in the apostasy if truth had completely died. There would not have been a restoration. The root of truth was alive during the apostasy, and I think that's true in all of our lives. I don't think the Spirit ever dies completely. Therefore, even that little spark of light, how much light can pierce darkness? Yield to truth and light. Give in. Seek the Spirit. Go do the things that bring the Spirit. Put yourself in the environment that brings the Spirit. 
And that yielding to the Spirit is what puts off the natural man. And we begin to win that battle. I think that's Paul's message to the Romans. And so Romans chapter 2 continues Paul's argument about the universal nature of human sinfulness and the need for salvation. Paul is going to challenge the Jews' sense of superiority and their reliance on the laws of Torah. He's going to emphasize that they too are guilty of sin and they too are deserving of judgment. Paul will argue that true obedience to the law requires an inward transformation and a heart that seeks after God. To me, that's Romans 2 verse 29. Paul's emphasis on God's impartial judgment serves to underscore the seriousness of human sinfulness and the need for salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. That's big picture of how I see chapter 2. We start in chapter 2 with his condemnation of hypocritical judgment in the first five verses, but then in verses 6 through 11, Paul gets into this idea that God is impartial in his judgment. Look in verse 6. God will render to every man according to his deeds. Look in verse 11. God is no respecter of persons. And then he's going to say in verse 13 that hearing the law makes you just, but the doers of the law shall be justified. That's kind of the Jewish approach. If we keep the law, we're justified. But big picture in the whole book of Romans, Paul's going to emphasize that the just shall live by faith. That word pistis or faith can mean faith as we think of it, but I, I think the Book of Mormon really does lay out what faith is, and I think this is also holding true to the Greek notion of pistis, which is this deep and abiding trust, but it's also a reciprocal trust. As we show faith in Christ, he shows faith in us. He trusts us, and as we show greater faith, we grow from grace to grace. We grow in faith, in trust. And so I think one of the things Paul's going to be doing in Romans is to push against the idea that following the laws of Torah will be sufficient. Overall, Paul's message in Romans will be that we need to have an inward transformation. We need to grow in our faith and trust in Christ. And as we do, we will be obedient to the law, but it is not the law that will save us. It is Christ. Now, for me, whenever I teach Romans or whenever I teach these epistles that get into some of these, I always like to supplement with Book of Mormon texts because in my mind, they're clearer. These Book of Mormon texts a lot of times are clearer. Like when Bryce went to Mosiah 319, the natural man is an enemy to God. I mean, that says it as good as it's going to be said, in my opinion. There are several verses in the Book of Mormon that really lay out this idea about the law and about salvation. But one of them that I that I like is in the discussion that Abinadi is having with the priests of Noah. This is in Mosiah 13. And in Mosiah 13, verse 28, Abinadi simply makes this statement to the priests of Noah where he says, And moreover, I say unto you that salvation does not come by the law alone. And were it not for the atonement which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people— they must unavoidably perish, notwithstanding the law. And so one of Paul's main statements to the saints in Rome is that the law does not save you, but it is Christ that saves you. 
So in other words, Paul's saying, live in the world, but don't be of the world. Now that poses some challenges. Now watch what he does. This is my take on chapter two, is he's talking about some of the balancing principles when we're trying to be in the world, but not of the world. There's going to be some challenges. First of all, look at the first part is, look, you're no better than anyone else. So yeah, you have to live in the world, and you have to rise above carnality, but you can't condemn anyone. You can't point the finger in judgment and say, I'm so much better than you. That's the wrestle we find with people of the covenant. You make covenants to live differently, and yet you cannot point your finger of scorn and judgment and say, I'm so much better than you. You might as well get up on your ramiumptum, and you have become a Zoramite. So there's got to be a balance there. There's got to be a, I'm different than you but I'm not better than you. The other balance is in verse four, and I think this is one of the most significant things I would teach my children in this Come Follow Me. We know that I am saved by grace, not by the law. I'm saved by Jesus, but sometimes we take advantage of his goodness. Don't ever, Paul is saying, don't ever take advantage of the atonement. Now, let me ask you to be honest with yourself. Have you ever said to yourself, it's okay to sin because you can always repent? You are taking advantage of his atonement. You are taking advantage of his grief and his sorrow. Let me put it in an analogy. Imagine a teenager who drives recklessly because his attitude is, oh, my parents will always pay that. If I get a ticket, my parents will pay it. Now, what would you do if you found out that your son had that attitude? If he was reckless in his driving because he knew if he ever got a ticket, you would just casually pay the ticket. Wouldn't that be a little offensive to you? Isn't he taking advantage of your goodness? And so Paul says, don't despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee into repentance. In other words, the atonement is leading you to sin. You are using the atonement as an excuse to sin because he'll always forgive me. Isn't that ironic? The atonement of Christ is leading you to sin. The whole purpose of the atonement is to lead you to repentance. So there's another balance. All of these balances of living in the world and not being of the world. I love the very end, verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew which is one inwardly. Neither is that circumstance which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. So live in the world. Be Roman. Find happiness and success in Rome. You don't need to leave Rome, but don't be a Roman. Don't judge them. When you make a mistake, don't take advantage of the atonement. Find balance in all of these things, because the real issue here is What are you inwardly? What are you in the depth of your heart? I can live in the world and be successful in the world, but I need to make sure that what lives in my heart are the covenants of Christ. He ends this chapter with, he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. It's not the outward show that matters. It's the inward commitment as you're saying that, it really does dovetail into the next bit. If you go to chapter three of Romans, it talks about this question. Okay, so if you're in Rome and you're following Jesus, does that mean you're better than they are? That's verse nine. 
And then he says, no, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. In other words, we're all going to fall short. And then he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So yet we're here, you know, we're in Rome, but don't be like them. And it is, like you said, a balancing act. I like to call it walking a tightrope. How do I walk this tightrope of being in a world where everyone's doing Roman things, and yet I don't? And then people will say, well, you're judging me, or you're so judgmental, or you're a hypocrite because you say this, but we all know you think this. And it's the constant challenge of Christianity. And I think today's world in in the 21st century is probably not that different in that regard as being a saint during Paul's day. Big picture of Romans chapter 3 and 4 is the third chapter is Paul's addressing the universality of sin again and this need for salvation. But he's also going to emphasize, I think, much more clearly that it's not the law that saves us, but it's rather what the law does is reveal to us our shortcomings. You know, I whenever I read Romans 3, I think of Martin Luther, and there's this statement by Martin Luther when he was trying so hard to be righteous, and I'm kind of... I'm kind of giving my own rendition of what he said. He said something to the effect of, I monked my monkery till my monkery was sore. I never I never stopped being such a righteous monk, and I realized the more I tried, the more I just fell short. And anyone who's served a mission probably has had that experience where they served and they tried to be really super righteous, and the more you tried, uh, the more you realized, you know what, um, I'm just going to fall short. And it can kind of be debilitating. It can kind of be soul-crushing. We're back to that C.S. Lewis quote where a good man, when he's trying to be good, realizes their shortcomings. But he's also going to throw this idea out there where he says, well, then do we stop living the law? And, and that, that question is going to come up in Romans, and, and the answer is no. We still try to follow Jesus. It, this idea is complicated because the law of Moses, specifically many of the 613 rules of Torah, are no longer applicable. Circumcision is no longer applicable. The dietary laws of Judaism are no longer going to be applied in general to the Christian community. So it is a challenge. Another idea that Paul is going to emphasize in Romans 4, which dovetails with Romans 3, is this idea of faith. You see, Paul is going to use Abraham as a textbook case Abraham is being used by Paul to illustrate that Abraham, before Moses, remember he predates Moses by several hundred years, Abraham had faith in God even though there weren't all these laws of Torah. There was not the law of Moses per se because Moses hadn't been born yet. And Moses' faith or his trust in God showed to us as followers and to Abraham that he was worthy, that God made him worthy, and he was justified by faith or by his trust. Paul emphasizes that faith is not a work, but rather a recognition of the grace of God and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for salvation. In the way that this was used anciently, faith represented a reciprocal relational trust. In this case, with Abraham, a deep trust in Jesus, which, when the believer exhibited it, was reciprocated. Abraham had deep and abiding faith in God, and because of that, God showed trust in Abraham. Look at that constant trying to find the balance. Living a Christ-centered life while living in Rome is going to need constant balancing adjustments. So be different from them, but don't think you're better than them. 
Don't think you're better because you obey laws that they don't obey, because it's not the law that's going to save you. It's Jesus that's going to save you. So it's always that constant balance. Sometimes I may be out of balance and I need to obey the law more. Sometimes I need to rely less on the law and more on Christ and back and forth. And there's the balance. So one more. I love this one in chapter three, verses one and two. He says, so why even try? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to live differently than the people around you? Is it worth it to live like Christ? And the answer is a resounding yes, because he says in verse one, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? Is it worth it? Or should you just surrender and be like everyone else around you because you're at constant odds with what I want in my heart and what the people around me are doing? Is it worth it to live the covenant? And the answer is, much every way. Very much so. Chiefly, why? What's the main reason that makes it worth it? Because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. I love that when the older brother of the prodigal son said, how can you give him a party? You've never given me a party. Do you remember what the answer was? Son, thou art ever with me. The advantage of living the covenant are the revelations of Heavenly Father. It's being with your Father. It's having the Holy Ghost, having the Spirit in your life, being fed from on high, having God with you is the payment of living the life of Christ. Now, do you see that balance? Don't think you're better, but it is worth it. Don't judge them. Don't take pride in the fact that you live a higher law because it's not the law that's going to save you. It's Jesus that's going to save you. All of those things Paul is trying to adjust and balance and address, and it's going to take the Holy Ghost for you to say, what is it that I need to do? Where am I out of balance? I like that. I, I really like Romans 3 where it talks about verse 20. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the fact is we're all going to fall short. And then in verse 22 we read, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." To Martin Luther, when he read this, he realized that the works that he was subscribing to, especially as he understood it in medieval Christianity, he started to realize that it's Christ that saves us and not necessarily some of the things that were being done in the Roman church. I think in Paul's world here, in this context, Paul is trying to say that all of us are going to fall short, but we are made righteous. That word, it's a passive participle there, it, that phrase, being justified freely, is this idea that we are made righteous, and it's a gift through God's grace, through his charis. Charis is this, it's reciprocal, and it's a gift. Now, if I live in the time period of the first century, and let's say I want to be a, a blacksmith, and I'm like 12, I become an apprentice. Bryce is this great blacksmith, and I come to him and say, hey, will you teach me? He shows me charis or grace by teaching me the craft, 
and I show him charis, it's reciprocated through being obedient, through being on time. And by the way, for a long time, Bryce will probably give me the tasks that he doesn't want to do, the menial tasks, the repetitive tasks that I have to do over and over again to become a blacksmith. And what, while I'm doing that, I'm showing charis, I'm showing a gift, as it were, to Bryce, but he's showing me charis by teaching me the craft. And as I do it over time, I grow from grace to grace and the gifts get greater, but I can never pay him back. I'm never going to be able to square up the books and be like, hey, Bryce, we're even. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the setting and the way that Paul's understanding this, all of us are in that space in Romans 3.24. We are being justified. We are being made righteous, and it is a gift through God's grace. But it doesn't mean that it's just a gift and there's nothing required. No, it is reciprocated. And Paul's going to teach this over and over again where he's going to say, okay, so then do I not need to follow the commandments? And that's basically Romans 3.31, where he says, no, I still, we established the law. I still need to grow in grace. I need to continue to follow Jesus. And then to back it up, he's going to outline Abraham as an example of one who had great faith. And because of this, he grew in faith or trust and is an example of us as one who follows God, even though there was not a law. You see, his faith in God motivated him and moved him to work acts of righteousness and to follow the Savior. Now, when we go to Romans 5, we need to realize that this is emphasizing the benefits of justification by faith and the contrast between the effects of Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. Here, Paul is going to argue that through faith in Christ, believers are able to experience peace with God, hope, endurance, and the love of God. And this is all going to be demonstrated through Christ's sacrifice. Paul is going to contrast the consequences of Adam's sin with the benefits of Christ's unwavering obedience. Paul is also going to emphasize the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. And all of these things are made available to us through our faith or trust in Christ. And so the benefits of justification by faith are found in Romans 5, 1 through 11, where we will receive peace with God through that justification. We will receive hope and endurance through suffering. That's Romans 5, 3 through 5. And the love of God will be demonstrated through Christ's sacrifice. That's Romans 5, 6 through 11. Then he gets into the fall. Romans 5, 12 through 14 talk about sin and death through the fall of Adam and the gift of grace and righteousness through Christ's obedience. That's Romans 5, 15 through 19. Now, there is that phrase, katalage, in Romans 5, 11. That word is translated as atonement. I'm going to read Romans 5, 11. We also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the atonement. Now that katalage, this is sitting down and squaring up the books. I'm sitting down and having a reckoning, and that's really where we get that word reconcilio, re, again, con, with, cilio, to sit. That's in verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, sitting again with, we shall be saved by his life. To Paul, the atonement is a sitting down with God, 
sitting again with him, reconcilio, reconciled, and we're squaring up the books. It's only Jesus who has that ability to pay that debt. And that's why I love all the illustrations in the Gospels about Jesus being a 10,000-talent God. He can pay the 10,000 talents because he is a God. That sitting down and squaring up the books is a term that is going to be translated as atonement. And the reason why I like it is because when we receive the atonement, it is as if I'm sitting with Christ. We're sitting again together, we're squaring things up, and I'm acknowledging I am justified by his blood, by his grace. It is a free gift. And these are terms that are used over and over again in Romans chapter 5. And so with that, then we get into our final chapter of this week's Come Follow Me, where Paul is going to discuss baptism and its significance and its symbolism. Now, the next question seems to be, well, can you just let the natural man and the spirit live together? Can we just let them both go? That seems to be the question. And the answer is no, because if you don't learn to control the natural man, the natural man will control you. You can't just let them both go. That seems to be the question. You have to kill the natural man, or the natural man will kill you. So Paul says, know ye not, verse 3 of chapter 6, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death baptism and coming to Christ and the covenants of the gospel are the death of the natural man. I need to spend the rest of my life subduing and killing the natural man. Paul's going to say, I have to crucify the natural man. That's the idea here, is if I do not learn to control the natural man, the natural man will control me. So he says in verse 4, the symbolism of baptism, the token of baptism, the reason we are submersed in the water is it is a rebirth. We're going back into the womb, and something is dying so that we can be reborn, and we're coming out a new creature, no longer the natural man controlling me. So he says in verse 4, therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, what's that newness of life? It's yielding to the Spirit. That's the newness of life. I'm not going to let the natural man control me. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, ready? Here we go. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man, that's another term Paul uses for the natural man, our old man is crucified with him. My job is to spend the rest of my life, once I made that covenant of baptism, I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing all that I can to crucify the natural man. Now, back to Mosiah chapter 3, verse 19. How do I do that? I put off the natural man by yielding to the enticings of the Spirit, submitting to the will of God. And so that's my life. That, that's the covenant of baptism throughout the rest of my life, to crucify my natural man and bury him and come out with a newness of life, freed, from that controlling influence. The rest of chapter 6 is just about that wrestle. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, 
that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Don't let the natural man control you. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God. There's the tension, and there's the covenant. The covenant is to not let the influence of the natural man sway me to follow its desires. Instead, to let the influence of my spirit sway me to follow its desires. I cannot take my natural man into his presence. So either I stay in some inferior world or I let that natural man go and I bury it and I come out a new creature. That's what Paul is trying to teach about living in the world, but crucifying the natural man and becoming a new creature in Jesus. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we cover the end of the epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 7 through 16. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.